Okay, so we continue our study through the book of Judges this morning. There are some note sheets on the back table there. If you didn't get one in when you came in this morning, you can grab one of those. And just by way of quick review, you may remember from last week that we looked at Deborah and Barak's victory song over Sisera and the Canaanite army found in chapter 5. And that chapter ended with this statement, and the land had rest for 40 years. And I talked about how because the text didn't say that the land had permanent rest, that the text kind of left us with this uneasy feeling that whatever was going to be said next probably was not going to be good. And that is what we see as we open up here in Judges Six. So there on your outline, your outline, the first point that covers verses 1 through 10 is Israel's sin and the Lord's response. So let's take a look here at verses 1 through 6 to start. And if I can have somebody read that for us, Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Good, thanks. So, again, what we see here in verse 1 is the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so, another cycle begins here. And this time, we see the Lord giving the people of Israel into the hands of the Midianites who teamed up with the Amalekites and the people of East and kept them oppressed for seven years. And this oppression, as we've previously seen, caused this fear to take place in the hearts of the Israelites to the point where they were fleeing into the mountains to find places to hide out and places of strongholds where they could try to defend themselves whenever, whenever their enemies came against them. And so you see, it just really devastated the people of Israel for those seven years. Every time they tried to plant crops, the people would come in, devour the crops, bring in their livestock to eat what was left over and take their, their livestock, Israel's livestock. And certainly this should not have come as a surprise to the people of Israel, though it probably did. And the reason for that is because the Lord was simply being faithful to his covenant stipulations that he told Israel about. If they rebelled against this covenant, they would reap the consequences of their rebellion. And we see that in a couple places in Scripture. The first one is in Leviticus 26, verses 14 through 16. If somebody can read that for us. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with 
wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall, show, you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Okay, so that last part there in verse 16, I highlighted that or made it bold because that deals specifically with what Israel was going through at this point. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And that's what you had, the Midianites and Malachites and the people from the east coming up and devouring these things. And then in Deuteronomy, verses, uh, chapter 28, verses 29 and 31, it says, And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies. And so that's what you saw also, the plundering of Israel's livestock. And so God was simply being faithful to the covenant stipulations that he had made with the people of Israel. Now, like I said, it probably did come as a surprise to them, but it shouldn't have because the Lord told them what would happen if they rebelled against him. And as I, you know, as I think about these first six verses here that open this new cycle, I want to think about what we can learn from this section. One of the things that I think should stand out to us is the character of God. We see the character of God revealed here, that God is faithful to his word faithful to bless the obedient and faithful to discipline the rebellious. Now, as those under the new covenant, we praise and thank God that because we're in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. But we must not deceive ourselves into thinking that just because we have been freed from the condemnation of our sins that we are also free from all of the consequences of our sinning. We must not presume upon the grace and mercy of God and use that as a license to sin. Even as believers, all sin has some type of consequence for us, whether that be hindered communion with God and his people, which should be the one that grieves us the most, or perhaps, as we see with the case of the Corinthians, the end of our lives here on this earth when the Corinthians were not taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. The text says there in 1 Corinthians 11 that some of them died. So when, when Paul was recounting this for the Corinthians, the seriousness of idolatry, which is what we see uh, Israel dealing with here, he uses, Paul uses the example of Israel in the wilderness between their deliverance from Egypt and their entering into Canaan. So I want to I take a look at that so that we can see how a story like this is applicable to us. So 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 11, if I can have somebody read that for us. It's broken up onto a couple slides, so I'll switch it when you get to the bottom. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must, not, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by servants, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Okay, thanks, Forrest. So what we see there is this warning to not follow the example of the idolatrous Israelites and put Christ to the test. And one of the things through the book of Judges that Israel seems to continually forget is that God is faithful to his word. Faithful to bless, certainly, but also faithful to discipline their rebellion. So I think that's something that we can see for ourselves, too, is that the character of God remains the same, and he is faithful to his word. So as we look going on, after the people of Israel cry out here in verse 6, something very unusual happens in verses 7 through 10. So take a look with me now at 7 through 10 here. When the, pe when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, this cycle, while it's very similar to the previous cycles that we've already looked at, it is unique in this way. When Israel had cried out to the Lord in the past, the Lord responded by raising up a judge to deliver them from their oppressors. And as we'll see as we go further into this chapter, that is what he's going to do here as well. However, unlike the other cycles, in this cycle, before he sends them a judge to deliver them, he first sends a prophet. And the reason for that is that although Israel does need a deliverer more than that, Israel needs a prophet to bring the word of the Lord to them. The people needed and wanted immediate relief, but more than that, they needed to hear why they needed that relief at all. They needed to hear what put them in this situation that caused the need for relief. They needed to be reminded of God's faithfulness to them and of their unfaithfulness to him so that they might feel the weight of their rebellion and see why they are in the position they are in at this point. And again, I want us to think here about the lesson that we can learn from verses 7 through 10. And something that really stood out to me here was in my study, uh, Dale Davis had a really good point on this where he said this, surely God's way with his people has not changed. Like Israel, we may want escape from our circumstances while God wants us to interpret our circumstances. In other words, to understand the reason that we are in the situation that we are in. Sometimes we may need understanding more than relief. Understanding God's way of holiness 
is more important than absence of pain. We may want out of a bind, whereas God wants us to see our idolatry. God means to instruct us, not pacify us. And I think that was a really helpful point that Davis brings out here, is that the Lord is faithful to teach his people, right? To guide us and, and direct us, and not at times to just bring us that immediate relief in whatever situation we have found ourselves in, right? So God didn't want to just pacify Israel and immediately send a deliverer to bring them out because they wouldn't learn why they were in the situation that they were in in the first place. And, you know, as I thought about this, I thought, man, we should really thank God for this when he does this for us, although Thanksgiving may not be our first reaction to our, our first inclination. But listen, God cares and loves about us enough not to simply stick a spiritual pacifier in our mouths when we cry out to him because of sin that's in our life, but to teach us to see his beauty so that we may not return to that place of idolatry again. It reminds me of what was said by the psalmist in Psalm 119, which is a really strange, I mean, it, unless you really understand the sovereignty of God and why he works the way he does, it's a really strange saying here. Before I was afflicted, I went astray but now I keep your word. Now, this is the part right here. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes, right? So that, that's a strange saying if you don't understand, right? The sovereignty, it's good for me that I was afflicted, right? For this reason, it's just not, there's not a period after that. It's good for me that I was afflicted. Nobody just wants to, hey, yeah, bring affliction on and it has no purpose behind it. But here's the point that I might learn your statutes, right? So when we're in the middle of going through something, and again, that may be due to our sin, God is teaching us through that, as was the case here with Israel. But we also see instances in Scripture, take, for example, the case of Job, where it wasn't due to any specific sin, but God had something that he wanted to teach. And I think Job could affirm that statement at the end, that he learned about the character of God and who God was. And like I said, this is, a, this is something that we should give thanks to God for because of his kindness in revealing more of himself to us and to help us not continue to walk down those paths that are harmful for us. Another thing that should jump out, us, out at us here in verses 7 through 10 is God's patience, his long-suffering with his people. If you notice here, after the prophet recounts God's faithfulness here in verses 7 through 10, he pronounces Israel's unfaithfulness in this way. He says, but you have not obeyed my voice. You see that at the end of verse 10. Now, what we might expect the prophet to say next is, therefore, and then launch into what the Lord is going to tell him and how the Lord is going to respond to that idolatry. That is what we see in other places in Scripture, and it's perfectly just for the Lord to respond that way. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 11, if I can have somebody read that, verses 9 through 11. Again, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant 
that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Okay, notice verse 11. So you have that same type of indictment that's brought against the people here, as we see in, in Judges. Okay, they've broken my covenant. They've gone after other gods. Verse 11, therefore, okay, because of that rebellion, here's how I'm going to react to that. Well, what's unique here is we see after verse 10, but you have not obeyed my voice, the next thing that happens is the angel of the Lord showing up at Aphra to appear to Gideon and appointing a deliverer for Israel. And, you know, what should strike us about this is, again, the patience of the Lord and how slow he is to anger. And even as we think about our own lives and our own sins and struggles and our own chasing of idols, God is patient in continuing to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And so we should often think about that, right? You just think about your life maybe over the last week and you see your own sin and your own struggles and you see the kindness and the patience and the long-suffering of the Lord just to continue to work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. And that should cause great thanksgiving to arise from our hearts. So that's a point that I think we can really, as we see the character of God laid out here in these first 10 verses, thinking about God's faithfulness to his word, thinking about his patience uh, with us, that's something that should really strengthen us and really cause us to live lives of thanksgiving for his continual mercy that he showers upon us uh, day by day. Okay, so before I move on to verses 11 through 24, does anybody else want to mention anything that you see there in the first 10 verses that are helpful? It's all helpful, yeah, it's all helpful, yeah, yeah, amen. Okay, all right, well, let's go on here, and if, while I'm going through this, if you guys have anything that you want to share, just raise your hand and feel free to interject, Okay. The second point there on your outline, I've entitled that Weakness Chosen, Strength Revealed, and that will cover verses 11 through 24. So I want to go ahead and, and read that, verses 11 through 24, and maybe we can break that up. If I can have somebody read verses 11 through 18, and then have somebody else read verses 19 through 24. Okay, who would take 11 through 18 for us? Dave, thank you. And then how about 19 through 24? Anybody want to take that? Stacy? Okay. All right. Okay. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizurite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, 
If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I bring to you, until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an epoch of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terabeth and presented them. <clears throat> the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened cake, and fire sprang from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cake. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands in Oprah, and which belonged to the... Ibez writes. Yeah. yeah, tough, tough one there. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Stacy. So what we see here is after sending the prophet to reveal to Israel why they were in this predicament again, the Lord sends the angel of the Lord to visit a man named Gideon. The angel of the Lord here, almost all would agree, is more than likely the pre-incarnate Christ. And he comes to Gideon while Gideon is secretly beating out the wheat in the wine press. And so then after this startling introduction by the angel of the Lord that the Lord is with him and even calls him a mighty man of valor, after that happens, we see Gideon here firing a few questions that would have undoubtedly been brewing in his heart for a long time. If the Lord is with us, why this oppression? Where is the Lord who delivered our people from the hand of the Egyptians? Why hasn't he delivered us from the hand of the Midianites? Where is he? Right? So you see uh, these things, it just, Gideon just needed an outlet. Right? You could see that this was something that was brewing up in his heart for quite some time. And essentially, the Lord answers him here by saying, That's why I'm here, Gideon. I'm sending you to save Israel from the hands of the Midianites. Go in this might of yours and do it. Now, you can imagine what would have been going on in the mind of Gideon as he hears this. He certainly wanted more than anything for the Lord to show up and deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Midianites. He wanted to see the Lord to display his might against his enemies like he did for his people against the Egyptians. But to think that Gideon would be the one to do this, right? In his mind, it was no way. And so what you see here, almost humorously, is, is Gideon protesting against this commission by the Lord by kind of like laying out this resume for him, right? Right? And so he kind of goes like this, hear my qualifications, Lord, to help you see 
that you've got the wrong man. You showed up in the wrong wine press. Okay? For starters, I'm from the weakest clan in Manasseh. On top of that, just in case you didn't realize, I'm the youngest in my father's house. In other words, what you have Gideon saying here is, I am totally inadequate for what you want to do. And then watch how the Lord responds to this in verse 16. But I will be with you. In other words, the Lord is saying to him, I know who you are, Gideon. And that's the very reason that I'm here. You are inadequate, but I will be with you. And so what Gideon needed to get his arms around, and I think what we need to get our arms around, is that the reality that our inadequacy is simply a platform for the Lord to display his adequacy. Our weakness is simply meant to be a backdrop to display his power. And that's why God came to Gideon. And we see this in the New Testament as well, a text that we looked at last week, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak. Yes, little weak Manasseh and you, the youngest in your father's house, Gideon. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. And here's the purpose of it, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Gideon, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to save Israel, and it's going to be clear to everybody that this is the work of the Lord. And that's what he's getting across there. Now, you may remember the Apostle Paul also trying to get his arms around this as he's dealing with this thorn in the flesh. And here's his conclusion after the Lord, as the Lord speaks to him. The Lord's saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response to that is, therefore, I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so what, what we see here is that Gideon's focus was in the wrong place. He was looking within and feeling the weight of his inadequacy, and certainly he should feel the weight of it when he looks there, but he needed to get his eyes off of himself and remember who it was commissioning him for this task. Now, to be fair here, Gideon is not alone in bringing these objections to the table. The very man that God used to display his greatest redemptive act in the Old Testament, Israel's deliverance out of Egypt was Moses, and Mo Moses protested in a very similar way that Gideon does here in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, if I can have somebody read that for us. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, 
and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Okay, so verse 11, you hear Moses taking this in. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, right, and bring the children? And as you read that story, as it goes further on, Moses continues his protest, right? But notice verse 12, the same exact response God gives to Gideon. But I will be with you, right? That's the, that's the difference maker right there. That ends it. You don't need anything else. And listen, when we think about our own lives, right, when we think about bearing witness for the Lord. That's the difference for us as well, right? We hear the words of our Lord Jesus at the end of Matthew 28. Behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age, right? And so when we think about this commissioning here, we, we recognize God commissions the church to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we often feel massively inadequate for that task, right? When we think about the salvation that's needed for our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family members, we can feel the reality of our weakness in helping them. But here is the promise that we have from our Lord. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And as we saw there in 1 Corinthians 1, the reality is this, that God has chosen to use weak vessels like you and me to proclaim this glorious gospel. And listen, he does, he does it this way so that it will be seen by all that the power is not in the messenger, but in the God who sends us to proclaim that message, right? And so that's, that's the reality that Gideon needs to get his arms around here, right? Is absolutely, you are inadequate. And you can think other, other examples. David, for, for example, of God just stepping in and choosing people like this so that he would get glory and not man. Now, back in the text here, Gideon hears this word that God will be with him, but he needs assurance that this is really God that is speaking with him. And so he asks for a sign. And God mercifully gives him a sign by devouring the fire, the young goat, with fire, the young goat, the unleavened cakes, and the broth. But, but notice here, this is really interesting. Rather than this bringing comfort and assurance to Gideon, it terrifies him, <laughs> right? Which is why he says in verse 22, alas, or alas, and that's like saying, oh no, <laughs> Oh, Lord God, for now I have seen 
the angel of the Lord face to face. So Gideon undoubtedly knew that no man could see the face of the Lord and live, and he feared for his very life. So give me some assurance of this. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. That's not what I expected. But God comforts him by saying this, peace be to you. Do not fear. You You shall not die. Essentially, what the Lord is showing Gideon there is, I didn't appear to you to kill you, right? But to call you to deliver Israel out of the hands of the enemy that I might get glory, okay? So I think that that section, again, can be massively helpful to us as we, again, sense the weight of our own inadequacy. We look outside of ourselves and we look to the Lord who has commissioned us and who resides within us. And it's through him that the world will come to know or through us that he has chosen to use, that the world will come to know him. And he does it this way so that he will get get the glory. Okay? All right. So before we move on to that last point there on your outline, any any points there on 11 through 24? There's more that we could probably bring out, but for the sake of time. Yeah, Forrest. I was thinking about Moses. Yeah. How he made the excuse that I don't have good speech. Yes. Stuttering. Yeah. And God said, um, okay, I'll let Aaron speak for you. Right. And uh, we think of all the prophets who would proclaim God's word and his commands. Almost every one of them would say, I'm not worthy of a man of unclean lips. Right. When we stop and think about that, we're without excuse. I think that's yeah. the learning that's great for us. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. God has chosen to do it this way. He uses weak, inadequate people, fills us with his spirit to proclaim his word and get glory for himself. And you've probably seen that, right? Like if you share the gospel with somebody, you kind of walk away, you're like, wow, that was, that was the Lord. <laughs> that didn't come from, from me. Okay, so let's take a look here at the third and final point on your outline, which I've entitled a showdown and a sign. And let's take a look here at verses 25 through 32 to start. This will take us all the way through verse 40, but I'm just going to read 25 through 32 to start here. That night, the Lord said to him, okay, so so here it is. Notice the immediacy of it, right? I'm calling you, Gideon. Tonight, we're doing something about this, right? So it's like, "Give give me some time to like gather myself up here. Nope. Going to work. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, 
Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. So, we see the first order of business in God delivering the Israelites from the hand of the Midianites is to destroy the gods of the Midianites whom Israel had adopted once again as their own. The Lord was making very clear right at the beginning that I am the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods before me. Here is where we begin. Yahweh is a jealous God and he will have no rivals. Baal was much more tolerant. Baal's mindset there was, you can worship me along with all these other false gods. Yahweh, not so. And listen, that is the way of the Lord, right? As we read in Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for he will hate, he will, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And we see Jesus essentially doing the same thing with the rich young ruler when the rich young ruler asks Jesus, how can I inherit eternal life? You may remember from that account, Jesus shows him <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the idol of wealth that is in his heart and essentially calls on him to tear it down and destroy it and come and follow me. And as we know, that man was unwilling to part with his idol and therefore rejected the gracious offer of Jesus. And so the Lord calls Gideon here in verses 25 through 27 to destroy the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah pole. If the Lord is going to save Israel, the idols have to go. They must be willing to leave it all behind and follow the Lord. They must be willing at whatever cost to follow him to follow Yahweh. And so Gideon knew there were going to be repercussions for this, right? So the Lord doesn't just kind of start him off easy. Here's your first assignment, Gideon, right? Here's what I want you to do. Your father has an altar of Baal. Destroy it. Cut down the Asherah. And then take the wood from the Asherah and use that for the sacrifice. So Gideon knows there's going to be repercussions for this act, which is why he was afraid to do it during the day. But don't miss this point. He did it nonetheless. I don't want to make too much of his fear here. He obeyed what the Lord had asked him to do. And even if he had some hesitation and some trembling in his heart with that. And, you know, as I thought about this section, I thought we can really learn from this as well. Because that same call comes to us. And that call is this, that we must be willing at whatever cost to follow the Lord. We must be willing to lose everything, family, friends, reputation, and so on, to follow the Lord. And when we understand what we're getting in return for that loss, namely communion with God himself, it puts that loss in its proper 
perspective. And so Gideon, even with some hesitation here, obeys the Lord. I also want to say something here about the fear of Gideon. If we're honest with ourselves, this is a fear that every follower of Christ knows. And it arises because we know there is going to be opposition to the message that we proclaim and the life that we live. And that is how God calls us to act amongst an unbelieving pagan world. And so what Gideon needed to hear and what we need to hear is that is what the Lord told his disciples before sending them out to be his messengers. So I want to I read a fairly extensive portion of scripture because I really felt like this fit in well. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. <coughs> and I want to break this section up into, or break this reading up into a, a couple sections here. Starting with verse 16, if I can have somebody volunteer to read verses 16 through 25, who would be willing to read that? Okay, Jay, thank you. And then somebody to read 26 through 35, uh, 26 through 39, who'd be willing to read that? Will? Okay, thanks. All right, Jay. Behold, I am sending you out the sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. While they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the sons of man, before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house his above, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. But I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemy will be those of his own household. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Amen. Thank you. So, you know, what we see here, and as we think about Gideon and the call to do what he was going to do, and thankfully what he did, you know, we remember here, there's going to be much temptation to fear and retreat. But again, we must remember who it is that sends us and who it is that is with us. That will give us the strength and the courage to stand before an unbelieving world, just as the Lord was calling Gideon to do. So after Gideon, back in Judges chapter 6 here, after Gideon obeys the Lord's command, we see the multiple reactions in verses 28 through 32, when the sun rises upon the town of Ophrah. Baal has been destroyed, Asherah has been cut down and used as firewood for a sacrifice. Somebody's going to pay for this. And somehow the word gets out that it was Joash's son Gideon who has done this. And the men of the town call for the death penalty against him. Now interestingly, even though the altar of Baal is attributed to Joash, it's Joash who comes to his son's defense and tearing down the altar. And his argument is much like that of the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. You may remember that. And it goes like this, if Baal is God, he doesn't need any help from men of the town to uphold his honor, right? If he is God, he can contend against Gideon himself. Now, what's ironic here is that the men of Ophrah were the ones in the sight of the Lord who stood condemned, not Gideon. The men obviously forgot the command of the Lord in Deuteronomy 13 that if any seek to lead the people of Israel away from serving the Lord to go and serve false gods, they are to be put to death. So they were actually the ones on trial, not Gideon. And this is exactly what the men were doing. So they stood condemned, not him. And then at the end of this confrontation, Gideon's name is changed to Jeroboam due to his stand for the Lord. And what we see here is this, this once timid man slowly becoming bolder for the Lord. And that will continue to develop as the story progresses through the next few chapters. So let's, let's finish out this section here by reading verses 33 through 40. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, <coughs> excuse me, and they, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. 
When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So, (coughs) we see here at the beginning the strength that, again, Gideon was supplied with was he was clothed with the Spirit of the Lord. That was his strength. And he leads the people into battle against the enemies of Yahweh. And what we see here in verses 36 through 40, (coughs) again, is Gideon's need for reassurance. Right? So much like we saw at the very beginning where he said, show me something that this is really you. He lays out the young goat and the broth and so on, and that's devoured by fire. Again, we see him asking for a sign. He needs to be reassured that the promises of God are true. And amazingly, what we see here is God condescending to Gideon's weak faith and seeking to strengthen him afresh by performing not one but two signs on his behalf. And, you know, as I thought about this, I, you know, I thought we're certainly not that much different from Gideon in that regard. We, too, are at times in need of reassurance from God that his promises are true to us. And a passage that I thought about that I think illustrates this well is found in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. If I can have somebody read that for us. Okay, good. So notice here in verse 17, so when God desired, isn't this amazing? So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So we see uh, in this passage, much like we see with Gideon here, God's condescension to his people to strengthen them, to cause them to hold fast to him and to not turn away. My promises are true. My word is true. I am faithful. Trust me. Right? And we need that reassurance over and over again. I want to quote here as well. Another really good insight from Dale Davis on this portion of scripture. He says this, 
granted, Gideon's situation is a unique situation. Yet there is, I think, a theological spillover from this text for all God's flock. Not, not Hebrews, but the uh, Judges text. God is not ashamed to stoop down and reassure us in our fears. He is patient with our weakness. God doesn't mind humbling himself in order to bolster our fragile faith, our wavering grip on his word. He is so eager to do just that. Now, I love this application here. That he has provided a table instead of a threshing floor and bread and wine in place of a fleece. And so Davis hits here on the strength that God means to provide for our faith in the Lord's Supper every week. We're reminded again and again as we partake of it that God sent forth his son to both live and die in our place and to bring us to himself through Christ. And he reassures us of that week after week after week. The condescension of God is amazing. His kindness and his patience to stoop down and help his weak people. So I think there's much that we can learn from Judges chapter 6 here that we've looked at this morning. And one of the main things that I really want us to keep before us is that God is faithful to keep his word. And I pray that he would give us grace to continue to look to his son, the only one who has faithfully kept that word. And in doing so, he has secured for us a righteous standing with God and a guaranteed inheritance into his kingdom. And to that, we say, soli deo gloria. Glory to God alone. Amen? Amen. All right. Any comments? Anything? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Right. Right. Yep. Right. 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 Yeah. Absolutely. God means for our hearts to be strengthened with this beautiful ordinance that he's given to us. It's amazing. He's very kind and patient with us. So, hope you're strengthened by that. Look at Judges 6. Will will uh, pick up next week and continue looking at <coughs> Gideon and uh, how God is going to continue to use him. So, let's go ahead and, and pray as we close out this morning. Father in heaven, Lord God, we do thank you for your kindness to us, your condescension to us, Lord. You continue to strengthen us. Uh, And Father, we pray that you would continue to set our eyes upon the object of our faith, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep us looking to him. For Lord, we know as we look to him, that is where we find our strength as we recognize what he has accomplished on our behalf and this glorious reality that he will bring us into your presence. Indeed, the love of God is amazing and astounding. I pray that you would help us to digest this more 
And Father, we do pray also that you would help us to remember that you're with us always, even until the end of the age, that we would be faithful in both proclaiming the gospel and living it out before a world, Lord, that hates you just as we once did. But in your mercy, you called us unto yourself, and we pray that you would use us to call others to yourself, Lord, for your glory. And so we thank you for that. Bless us now, we pray, Father, as we go into the main service. May our hearts be strengthened again as we get to hear your word yet again. And this afternoon, we get to take the supper together. And just how gracious you are, Lord, in supplying bread for us from heaven. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.